the podcast for the real world meets the digital world as we explore the intersection of spatial computing and AI. Let's welcome our host, Andrew Ballard. Over to you, AB. Well, good day and welcome to Spatial. This is episode seven coming to you from late February 2024. We've got hmm, a quorum, half a quorum, 60% of a quorum. It's hard to say uh, myself. <laughs> and I'm staring at Violet and William on Discord. Sadly, we are missing. Mirek is sadly bowing to his robot overlords, hopefully keeping them in check. That's the battle plan anyway. And Helena, after a <clears throat> birthday week last week, has some sick kids so i feel your pain uh, my memories of the repressed memories of that era have been buried deep and i absolutely understand so we hope to get them both back in town next week all good um some great news too we're starting to tee up uh, special guests so uh, for the record we'll be doing spatial as a weekly episode coming at about this regular time but we're going to intersperse those with Shorter, sharper, more focused interviews with guests from uh, industry, from uh, research, from all parts of the spatial AI world. And we're going to intersperse those wherever they fall. So during the weeks, those will be coming to you shortly. We've got uh, a long list of people we are hoping to talk to, wanting to talk to, talking to, and uh, we'll get through those lists as we go through the weeks. Should be great. Uh, but William and Violet, wow. Just before last week's episode, when we were talking about robots, just half hour before we went to air, quote unquote, uh, OpenAI dropped one of its bombshells. It dropped Sora, the text-to-video that literally floored most of the internet over the last seven days. Your thoughts about, you know, the pre-release, uh, they're currently red teaming it, which is a polite way of saying they're trying to break it, bust it, and it's not public release. But yeah, your thoughts about Sora and the reaction to it? Mm. I'm not surprised that they released this. It almost makes sense given what some of the other video text to video models that were out there. Um haven't played with it much, but looks promising. Um I think we'll expect to see other releases like this from ChatGPT. Oh, sorry, OpenAI. Yeah, it's um it's had quite an impact on folks, particularly that follow filmmaking. I think um, some of the uh, discussions on Reddit are things like, oh, like, is filmmaking over? Is Hollywood dead? <laughs> sort of um, AI fear-mongering like that. But it's quite remarkable from a lot of different perspectives. One being it having sort of uh, the ability to render high-definition video at different resolutions. Um, so it can, if you want 4K or regular HD, um, it's... It's totally fine. It's um, it's it's interesting from a technical perspective, as well. From the the idea of having a diffusion-based model combined with a transformer architecture, um, that's really fascinating. And then they they tell a really nice um, story about the analog between tokens from text, but also um, the, what they have what, what they call patches. Um, kind of uh, spatial visual patches um, that form the the foundation of the the transformation that they do in the encoding and then decoding steps. Um, so it's really fascinating technology. They also um, talk about it in a more general sense that it's actually a, a kind of simulator of reality, and and so it, it tends. Folks have been saying that it it appears as if it uh, learns. 
um, uh, learns in sort of air quotes, mm -hmm. um, certain aspects of um, natural physics. Um, and um, without having been explicitly trained on those um, and on those natural physics behaviors, um, but the the end of the technical report um, does show some some curious some curious behaviors with uh, a glass sort of flipping itself uh, on a table and whatnot, which uh, mm -hmm. I think is quite I think is quite amusing. Um, but um, but yeah, it looks it looks super exciting. And uh, I would actually love to to build to build some short films using this model. I think it's oh, super absolutely. Yeah. You could foresee that if you had a one minute max length with a lot of pre prompt engineering, and then you know change the bottom half of your prompt every mm. time, you could in theory do a long format something in theory quite easily? Question mark. Mm. Um, Maybe we'll just stream this whole podcast into Sora and see what we get. Absolutely. Um, Seth, I don't think, well, we, we're not going to get us, though. We're going to get uh, people Oh, no, I don't. And we, I must we don't say, know our knees yet. may not work properly, but uh, <laughs> I think that's one of the defining <laughs> feedback items. Um, two, two bits of feedback, one serious and one, I guess, less serious. One is that um, perhaps it has been trained on game engines because it, the examples shown so far align really well with stuff in game engine-ish kind of world. And that could be excellent fodder for, you know, a input of a, uh, the training data set could be the output of a game engine and, you know, infinite resolution, infinite, you know, it'll never get bored versus mining the dirty, grainy, noisy, blurry world of YouTube, that kind of thing. So that's a possible, mm -hmm. but the most, uh, I think, cutting example of people talking about how text to video was 12 months ago with the infamous Will Smith eating spaghetti example, which was hallucinating without fail and really quite scary. How far we've come in 12 months. And then to go full circle, Will Smith released a brand new video of him reacting to that, eating spaghetti, trying to be his hallucinogenic self from a year ago. So we've gone full circle, but by all means, People are hanging to use Sora, and without fail, you're right. There's going to be open source fast follows because of the fact that now people know it's possible, but how? Um, so, the biggest open question, and I use the word open correctly. I wonder what else OpenAI has in its in its war chest of its uh, that's what works. I It's pretty amazing if they're doing this and just casually. It's almost say it Apple-like. They're releasing it early, loudly, on the basis that probably no one can copy them for a while. They're not releasing it and with a checkbook and put your credit card in here today. They're so far ahead of the release that they're reasonably confident that they've got the edge. Apparently they do. Mm. So pretty it's awesome. Like... Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll call that pre-Fast 5 amble. But hey, let's go into uh -huh. Fast 5. Fast 5. Okay, welcome back. Quick 10 second break, fast five. Gives us a chance to organize ourselves. Violet, uh, your fast five of the week is pretty awesome. Love the link. Can you explain what you're gonna be putting forward to the team? Yeah, so um, I'm sharing Sound X Vision. It's a ring for XR. And so I'm gonna read you how they describe it. Uh, the SoundX Vision is a project that delivers XR hardwares and interfaces, turning micro gestures into meaningful inputs for extended reality. So really what that is, is they've developed a ring that allows you to interact 
with content on a computer um almost like you would a mouse um so you know we, we're starting to see more of these interactions like of course apple's been really doubling down on the finger tapping gestures where people can wearing an apple watch can tap their fingers together and that does things in their devices um they're also you know apple's really looking at hand tracking with their vision pro um sounds like meta has been working on some sort of bracelet or um wristband of sorts so i think we're going to continue to see more type of wearables that are just thinking about the tapping touching haptics um and motion and so i thought this was interesting because the ring looks like it allows you to pick up really minute gestures on the hand. So we see someone um, scrolling through buttons and controlling like something like a volume control by just motioning their thumb over their index finger left and right very subtly. So it feels like a very natural interaction, and it feels also um, like a very non-invasive piece of tech i'd be much more happy to put a ring on my finger than a vision pro on my face so i think we're we're bound to see a lot of hand interactions yeah with, gotcha. um, this whole emerging field ways to actually uh bring more positivity and i mean that in the physical sense so a positive way to not just feel but a more active input method this is mm -hmm. is this inert is this batteryless is this using the ring as simply a easier to track or does this have slight battery slight gyro slight orientation sensor and uh, capacitance interesting to see whether this is a yeah in that active mode or a passive mode from the videos it is something that looks perfect the the controls that the gestures that uh, people are doing with with the ring is feels about right looks about right but then the question is whether the ring is adding to that in a, you know, Bluetooth active, you know, recharge every four hours sense, or whether it simply is being the thing that your uh, device grabs hold of as a positive reinforcement, yeah, a positive input. Maybe we can get them on the podcast. We can ask them directly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Top call. Cheers to that, Violet. All good. So um, we're going from uh, controllers to hands only and but there are competing interests of how much hardware you need to get intent across i guess there's mm -hmm. going to be a minimum threshold there somewhere and the first people to solve that and become the standard i am of course thinking of the infamous xkcd comic of you know the three panels of oh my god there are 37 standards for this field i know i will make one standard to rule them all third panel is there are now 38 standards for this field so <laughs> We will watch yes. and wait. Yeah. Very cool. William, over to you for a link that goes pretty big, general world models. Do tell. Yeah, that's right. And it's um it's actually fortuitously related to the Sora announcement from last week. And this one's from Runway Research. Um, it's an article from December actually on introducing general world models. And the idea is is in, in the context of generating videos that um, the idea is that the models that we can create 
for such simulate for um, for such uh, kind of text to video experience are actually based off of not strictly the idea of pixels um, that uh, evolve over time, but actually we can simulate parts of the real world. And that idea of simulation uh, carries over to the Sora announcement as well, where they claim that um, actually what's what's happening is something far more profound than say being able to predict the next patch of pixels from the from the previous. And um, actually what's being modeled are a kind of sense of what's happening um, predictively in the real world. And, and there's certainly evolving neuroscience theories around this as well, um, where um, folks are, neuroscientists are starting to challenge the idea that we have layered brains with a lizard brain sort of sitting in, um, at, at the lowest level, but actually, uh, we actually behave much more like like machine learning entities um, in in some respects, where we have a model of the world that we update um, constantly through our experience and our reasoning and, and our sensing. And so, to have a kind of um, machine learning model that actually does that, I think, is is really exciting and profound. I'm, I would be curious to see if the capabilities of this extend beyond generating videos, if we could actually have um, decision making and prediction that come along with this that go that go beyond just the um, the kind of entertainment aspects of text to video. So, uh, without fail, and this is a probably. And we probably say this is going to be the acronym slash tag for, dare I say it, the final type of model. We've gone from large language, we've gone from small models that aren't called large to large language models. Then we're going into multimodal where image input or data input or image output or data output. I've been asking a few things about spatial graphs recently and some of the multimodal, multimodal models are holding up quite well. But the third tier, we have been calling it spatially aware models. Um, makes sense to us. Um, that is um, that actual, you know, not just depth because it's got it, but it actually understands and comprehends the space that it's in. But yes, this new phrase is certainly one that's been started to be touted and we'll see if it takes hold. But general world models, GWM acronym is okay. It's okay. It's not taken by too many other things so that's always a starting point but yeah the the fact i like the fact that you use the word profound it is going beyond a simplistic can i grow an image which is was rocket science but now it's can i understand what i'm being asked for and can i replicate it and can i spin it on its axes that requires all those things that we talk about to be in the mix and that is um definitely one of the aims that we're trying to work towards Violet, you're itching to say. No, no, I, I don't know why I was getting close to the microphone. Oh, good. Well, good. Do you think GWM, General World Models, is going to be the label of choice for a fully 3D-enabled large anything model? Or are we still looking for more, uh, more labels and better names and better uh, ownership of this space? I think it's going to need something more catchy. General world models. I was trying to say something and like, gwum. No, it doesn't work. No. It doesn't roll off the tongue. It's you unique. You need something. I'll give, it, yeah. I'll give it points for unique, but it's not catchy. No, no. It's like general pants. It's like, yeah, I don't really. Yeah. <laughs> no, well. <laughs> I think for the rabbit R1, they have the large action model that they're running mm. with, which. Um, okay. 
that's uh, a, lamb. a little bit catchier but i think it i think it really is a kind of term around what a lot of language models can do already which is call functions outside of themselves but so i'm not quite sure if it's um as profound as a general world model but uh, uh but it's but it has the advantage of being marketable mm-hmm. it, it does I've, I've heard folks use um the term physical ai as well for ai that uses oh and oh, oh large behavior model was another one Ooh. i heard from the same like group that. calling yeah I, I think all these terms are so technical that they won't stick. They're, yeah, you know, not, it's like they're not the, wrong. The, they're correct, but they're not exciting. Yeah, they're not. They're not. It's the same that. way that we're all saying AI now to just label everything. It's so easy. Oh, AI. Yes, charged, Your Honor. Yes, indeed. I am culprit number one. I hear you. Well, my fast five takes those concepts and puts them into, you know, a refresh, actually. This is actually going uh, in the realm of Meta. This is Project Aria, um, which is being re-released. Now, this is pretty, actually pretty rare. Normally, anything new gets a new tag, not an update tag. Let me explain. Project Aria is um, Meta putting forward to the research world uh, gigs, terabytes, anyway, lots and lots of data of people doing regular things while wearing Meta Vision glasses, or probably even more where their movements are tagged, their video is tagged, sound is tagged while they're making movements. These are pretty regular activities of doing normal household cooking, playing games, walking around the house, those sorts of things. Um, the re-release and the reason why it's on the, um, uh, on the topic uh, today is that they've actually done more annotation as well as released more scenarios. Um, what They're not touting it as this phrase, but the moment I say this phrase, I'll have to you know take out the knife from my back other people are saying this is the training set to make jarvis understand bit of an eye roll but this is the kind of data set that by all means is excellent fodder for so many uh, scenarios this is multiple people walking around rooms interacting in quote-unquote absolutely normal behavior but their movements their their vision their sound their actions their hand tracking and object recognition all happening on the video but then photogrammetry sparse point clouds being made on the fly so that their movements, their positions in space are also being tracked. So from the point of an outside um, observer or a training uh, model, you can be using, how do I go to the fridge? How do I make the omelette? How do I you know, go from one, one room to the next? All absolutely fundamental building blocks, but what it's doing and topic of the day, which is what we're leading to, is this is a model that is absolutely human focused it is totally me centric to the point that they're actually saying it's egocentric and updated egocentric data set so it is absolutely from the point of view of a person and the training set is absolutely will be particular to any one person so i think the two subjects in question in the videos link in the show notes is great but hey if i'm tall and have to duck under all my ceiling fans in my house you know that's kind of a training set that needs to be put into place too so um, it is already getting localized to the test subjects, but the repository now is growing in size and the depth and the annotation is certainly also expanded uh, many fold. So publicly available data set, uh, throw in your email to request it. And um, I dare say the volume of data is probably going to be um, uh, probably now overloading. Now the question is, what can we do with, the, with this data and how can we make this into the next batch of understandings for either a future person wearing a headset or a lightweight glasses 
but also the training ground. Rather than doing game simulation, we're just using this kind of data set to have every waking moment recorded. And that's where the whole Jarvis kind of end result leads to, although Asterix heavily uh, not coming to a screen near you likely anytime soon. Any thoughts about this one? Does this strike as part of your potential data, uh, data sources for some research that you or your colleagues might be able to use? Potentially. I'm, I'm certainly going to refer it to my students um, so that uh, they can at least see some of the ways that these data are being collected. From an architectural design perspective, um, it's a, architectural and spatial designers have a, have a peculiar role to play of these kinds of things, which is not from the perspective of the agent walking around with the glasses, but actually the decision maker about what those agents see. And so this kind of, and, and can reason about uh, to some extent. And so such a data set, I think, would be really fascinating um, to, have them, uh, to have them poke and prod at. Uh, I would, I'm, I'm looking at, in particular at the kind of ARIA digital twin um, data set, which is this uh, kind of real world, hyper accurate digital counterpart that they, they call a kind of ground truth um, annotative environment. So something like this, I think, is exactly what, um, exactly what we're looking for in terms of uh, something that's consistent. Spatial data has this, has this challenge that um, the, uh, it's hard to find really large data sets that are consistent in structure and um, that have a lot of accuracy and tagging in a in a consistent and thorough way, particularly to reason about our complex environments. If we all lived in more of like a Tadao Ando space where um, we have got pure geometries and just just wood and water and concrete to worry about, that would be a much different world. But we actually, our homes and, and offices are full of trinkets and objects and complexities and stairs and all sorts of things that are that make it really hard to um, be consistent about. So this is super exciting um, from from that perspective. Can we actually and, and then the accessibility of these to folks that are that are, are not just machine learning and AI experts? I think that's also um, powerful a powerful idea as well. So if we can have sort of models deployed on Hugging Face or some other platform where we can start to experiment and tinker with these things without being PhDs, I think that'd be amazing. So. Yes. I, my reaction to this was actually um, more just the gut reaction to um, Meta and uh, in a model that understand so much about one person uh, which i'm sure is going to be like the whole conversation around glasses or a um you know uh, meta and facebook just don't have the best track record sometimes with society uh so the moment you have a pair of glasses that know your home know your space uh know what you posted on instagram that you just uh broke up with your boyfriend like does that start to change the interactions you have uh, maybe not but maybe i'm more um i'm definitely definitely on the cynical side of uh, a lot of these big companies well good it's good to be cautious by all means this data set is interesting and it certainly is wild Question though, with that notice to both of you, does a data set like this solve a problem that you've been waiting to solve in the research world? Or does a data set like this 
open up new questions for which you then figure out whether they can be solved. Cart before the horse. Um, are there known problems that you've got hanging on a shelf somewhere that when this data set comes along, you go, beauty, I can finally do the thing I've been waiting for? Or is it more, this data set leads questions that then you can extend upon? Does it breed new questions to then put on the wall and try and answer? I think from my perspective, it's more of the latter, um, mostly because I'm facilitating a course and environment where I can expose these sorts of ideas to a field of designers who normally don't interact with technology at this level. Um, spatial designers from the architecture and construction and engineering um, industries are more about modeling a digital twin from a top-down kind of perspective, where they're saying, oh, I, I really need to create this data set as a piece of documentation that then um, is, is going to be transformed into a physical form. But that transformation is somewhat an inaccurate process of having to go through the messy reality of construction. And so there are a lot, there's a lot of work in the spatial AI realm around being able to take those, those physical manifestations and bring them into the digital world and compare them with what was intended to be built so that you can track mistakes, track liability, um, and uh, essentially manage the project to a greater degree. And then there's this hope that in the future you can um, uh, you know, scan, existing, scan an existing building that wasn't modeled in such a detailed way that was built with, with pen and paper, essentially, and, um, and then turn it into something that's more manageable through a digital form. This, however, in my mind, um, changes the, has the potential, and data sets like it, have the potential to change the paradigm a little bit so that a spatial designer, say an architect or an interior designer, could potentially have a set of tools at their, um, at their disposal that they can use to reason about space using more of the capabilities that are afforded to us through large language models and transformers so that we can, say, talk about the experience that we want a potential inhabitant to have. Um, and so now that sort of value propositioning is quite manual. Um, when I was head of product at Floored, the value propositions that we had were both um, a client is trying to imagine a space and sell it. And so, but instead of spending a, a good amount of uh, money on outfitting only a portion of that raw space, they could create a digital version of it and email it to their client, and they could see it in a web browser. We extended that to use generative techniques so that you could have an iPad or a laptop and essentially change the layout of those perspective spaces on the fly and do that as a, as a broker instead of a skilled designer and still give your client that experience. Um, but still, those methods are really hard to access. But something like this... Um, if treated in the right way and given and like and, and models made um, around it could actually have a whole different set of generative tools. So I'm thinking of like Adobe Firefly and being able to generate and edit imagery, but like the but going from two to three dimensions is not a is not a fifty percent increase in complexity. Right? Oh yeah, it's a it's a multiple like fold increase in complexity. And to be, have the kind of leverage that graphic designers now have with Adobe Firefly, but get but hand that to spatial designers is really exciting. That's interesting. I I was thinking about it actually more from the first perspective, which is 
Um, I, my experience with working with digital 3D technology is it's always difficult to take things like video and understand them more objectively as an objective 3D model. Um, so like there's this group called the Center for Spatial Research that does a lot of data journalism and mapping. Um, and this other group uh, in London called uh, Forensic Architecture. And they do all this humanitarian journalism where they take video and then um, look at things like war crimes and try and figure out from the video, where did it happen? They actually reconstruct 3D models based on the video wow. to see where was the bomb dropped. Um, so they can, someone's manually doing all that work. <laughs> They're yep. actually yep. working more forensically. Um, so seeing something like this is really interesting because it does solve a specific problem, which is um, that having tons of crowdsource subjected views in perspective that are muddy and they're like from all different angles and then being able to reproduce an objective model that's a 3d model that knows yep. exactly where that perspective was taken from um yeah i'm just like seeing how that solves things in forensics but probably um a lot of other fields too it's something we've been thinking a lot about of like how do we do the same type of um, object tracking and stuff from random perspectives? <laughs> so, yeah, really interesting. There was an old Microsoft technology. I don't know if it's still around or not. It was probably 10 years ago of using all the, ooh, not Instagram, before Instagram. What was the, uh-oh, I'm going to get it wrong, the image library of choice on the web before. Any, anyway, they would use all the tourist photos of like the Leaning Tower of Pisa, <laughs> and then you could like uh, Google uh, Street View, kind of walk towards the Leaning Tower of Pisa by jumping to the next photo that someone took, maybe mm, the same mm -hmm. year, maybe years ago, Photosynth or something like that from memory. But look, that was mm -hmm. 2D still frames in a 3D space, which was phenomenal technology. Now we're talking with this kind of data set, correlating and uh, you know putting together multiple 3D, long big data sets, long format video photogrammetry into one coherent picture. It's pretty mm -hmm. awesome that they've got two. I'd like to know whether there's only ever two people in scenes or only ever one or whether they've you know, been able to put that up to 10 or 20 because by all mm. means, the more views, the more um, insights can be gained. This is making me think we're going to have a future um, Google Street View type of thing merged with YouTube. It's just like a real-time digital twin oh, yeah. of like whoever's, yeah. whoever's taking video. It's like live updating what's actually happening in the world. Yep. Google Street View plus nerfs or gasps. And, you know, yeah. if you want to go interspersed into, you know, halfway between the two photos, then you're just there. It's what, what year do we think that's coming? Is that like mm -hmm. a 2030, 2040? Uh, probably next year. Next year, yeah. Open AI. Open AI is releasing it <laughs> next year. Next Wednesday <laughs> is the prediction. <laughs> 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 Top mark. We'll leave Fast Five there. That was Fast Five combined with some deep insights. But tell you what, let's take a quick break and come back with Deep Dive. Deep Dive. Okay, welcome back to Deep Dive. This 
uh, this week's topic is, well, we've got a long version of it and a short version of it. Long version of it is local AI and subjective AI. So being raised is, um, you know, how place, local culture, language, country, points of view change the context of an AI. So uh, my take, and I'm going to quickly handball it over to Violet here in a second, is how did this, this massive world of, I'll stress the words, large language models, global world models, you know, we've got large, huge, massive, awesome, and they can do amazing tricks. We know them, we love them, and we'll use them more and more. But how does it get down to the me level? So my fast five was the egocentric AI training data set. That's pretty important. How do we go from globalizing an AI that, you know, the days of building your own anything on your own personal water-cooled supercomputer at home is probably not behind us, but definitely not the way to go anymore. Now it's wait and see some of the mega corporations with their years and centuries of training time, what they're going to release next. So how do we go from those big ones down to something that's me-centric? Violet, over yeah. to you. So one thing that I'm really interested in is the I- just the idea of having more local, regional models. So we've it was interesting to see how much something like Google and the internet really changed the world. It became uh, lots of globalizing forces happening at the same time. Um, we Google something and we get a generalized response based on this massive search. Um, it's very global intelligence. There's a potential of AI moving in the same direction, this all-knowing global model that knows about all the different cities, all the different places, all the different contexts and disciplines. Uh, It's a structural engineer, but it's also uh, your girlfriend. Um, You know, it's like, it's somehow everything. Um, But at the same time, there's another movement that is an interest in how do we put models locally, like actually physically locally on your device? Um, And also how do we train them to the specific context of your company or maybe even your city? Um, So I'm interested in what would an alternative future look like where we had, instead of one universal, all-knowing model, is there a world in which we have many pluralistic models, almost like regional locals that like know all the things about Philadelphia, or know all the things um, what about is Singapore? <laughs> Let's get to yeah, it knows everything about it. Yep. Um, um, so I'm kind of curious, like, is that a viable? future where we have more regional local knowledge is there value to having this pluralistic future um i'm biased i think that there is because i think that localness and disciplinary knowledge is actually one of the most um valuable experiences i i'm like very interested in that diversity that emerges from that last mile of context is the bit that means i get the right answer with the right spelling with the right directions with the right context without that you get the general view of philadelphia and you know i'm now 
how many 20,000 miles away I'm using my vague knowledge or historical knowledge. Um, I could have a damn fine guess like an AI model, but how do you actually, yes, but what's it doing now and where should I go today? And, you know, all that context is only going to be relevant locally. So what's the downward flow of more bespoke models closer to you? How does that mix with a big one up in the cloud? Yeah, I'm curious, like, would you value something that was more local? Do you have specific things that, yeah, I'm like, I, I actually just kind of curious. Is, is this even a viable future of having different local models? What does that actually do for you? I can give you one specific reason why that is probably likely. I need to be a little bit vague in my industry and clientele that I'm playing with. Let's just say we have a new realm of global world weather models that's coming through. A few years ago, they were fine, but you wouldn't use them. In the last two years, they've become very good to the point of their, their ability to predict the weather many days out is in many ways on par, sometimes better, sometimes worse, but it's approaching human level. And when I say human level, what I'm, what I'm actually uh, comparing to is every nation state's regional supercomputers that are trying to do the exact same job. So the mm. question is, in what year of the future does a global world model for weather probably inform the 90-something percent of the numbers that we get given when we check the weather? And how much does a local regional body do minor updates or tweaks if in Philly mm. take off mm -hmm. 1.2 degrees? because yeah. reasons. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, it makes me wonder what things are more valuable to be more localized. Um, there's so many things that scale just solves so well. So like Google Street View just went everywhere and created a global model that everyone could access. Um, didn't make sense for a bunch of different companies to tackle that infrastructure. Yeah, so per, per, perhaps it's like you're saying, it's like we'll get to something that's global with local tweaks or something. Well, I, I think from one perspective as well, at least from a, um, from a point of even critiquing the current large language models that are on the market, the most obvious one to me is the fact that the largest models today are trained on English. Mm -hmm. And there are, of course, efforts that are going on, particularly in the research and open source fields. I think Hugging Face has a community-driven project around this as well to train models off of other languages. And so that that first starts to get to the idea of the literature and the knowledge that these cultures have that are beyond the sort of Western affected, like, like Western sourced cultures. Mm -hmm. But also there, from a kind of more abstract perspective, the idea that your thinking and the way that you perceive the world is also crafted and influenced by the language that you know and the language that you use. Um, also sort of affects the reasoning potentially that such language models can exhibit. So I'd be super curious to understand if thinking in, in East Asian languages and other Western languages um, differ fundamentally in some way. Do they give you different information, different conclusions, different mm -hmm. sorts of reasoning? 
um, like Just different life philosophies altogether. Yeah, for sure. Particularly when considering the 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 kind of lexicon and corpus that would be available um, from that training, like just thinking about the you know five thousand years of written Chinese history, um, sort of mind-boggling from from that perspective, and the idea that you know individual Chinese characters can be represented as tokens, you know, and then have their own embeddings and so on and so forth to fit the transformer architecture, and then that. You know, really, really changing how we think, um, and then that also comes with potential downsides, particularly with how uh, at least Western cultures are evolving around um, diversity and bias and so on and so forth. I, I think one popular thing to see on TikTok are are how the words for men and women are different um, in languages like Mandarin and um, and Cantonese, mm -hmm. where if you're if you're over the age of 30 and you're male you have some really um sort of positive um words that describe you but if you're over the age of 30 and you're female then there are many different words for um that are have, carry negative connotations in in certain east asian languages like um the orange at the bottom of the of the bucket and like like things like phrases like that that are that are very strange from from our perspective and so um and Along with that as well, like the sort of localization of the kind of curious biased localization of some of the of the models that we have today is also an interesting aspect where if you ask, there, there was a study done, I, I was looking for it just now, I, I'll, I'll find the, the article later, where a kind of consistent study was done around um, words that just uh, words that refer to people and places. And more positive images are generated, say, if you ask for a New York City street, then you ask for a street in India, for example, or mm -hmm. in Africa, where the, just the training data that you get mm -hmm. um, is already biased um, based on those localities. And so I think what we're talking about is um, both from a generative and analytical perspective, something where um, we really have to pay close attention to not only the... Um, the the benefits of that kind of localized nature, but also once we get once once you're the other, mm -hmm. once you're the the observer from outside, yeah, how do you treat that? Yeah, how do you treat those localized those localized phenomenon? Yeah. yeah, it seems important to have a lot of these models, regardless if they're general or local, being developed by locals, <laughs> so that you definitely get a range of perspectives as those are getting developed. There's been a real series of memes uh, on the interwebs of um, asking a multimodal for images on the same text input, but then just changing the country. So, you know, um, mm. a typical morning breakfast routine in America, Australia, XYZ country, and having a nice list of them, or um, 10 levels of houses from poor to mansions mm -hmm. in country xyz and then having the series or well, actually the matrix of images to sort of show the of course inbuilt bias and you know mm -hmm. expectations what it was trained on what what it what it thinks almost that's mm -hmm. one of the classic gotchas that's happened in the last few weeks i'd, mm -hmm. I'd say not few years of uh, the way to catch out these models because they're obviously wrong but attempting to localize them is close um, I wouldn't mind asking you a question, and I'm going to go back in history. This is BC. This is before COVID, so it's really old. But <laughs> before large language models, there was a design pattern. You can tell I'm an architect. I use that phrase like it's 
a daily everything. You know, I haven't said it in the last <laughs> 20 minutes, so I'm not getting my goals up. Um, a design pattern of, before we had large, large models, of using an ensemble. Um, the basic trend, the basic thinking was have all the models turned on for a topic. One might be a image detection, one might be a giraffe detector, you know. Mm. Is this image a chair, a box, a car? And it might say it's a, it's a car. But your other model, which your, uh, what did I say, a uh, giraffe detector says it's not a giraffe. Before we had all encompassing models, we had lots of models potentially stacked up side by side, all fed the same input. And the ones that were the most confident would mm. rise to the top of, I think it's an X, I think it's a Y. All the giraffe detectors would stay remarkably quiet for most of their natural lives. Now we've gone back from that to one model to rule them all. Perhaps in this localization model, we might have the big model in the cloud. We may have a local dispersed by IP, by location, by internet provider, who knows, but a local flavor. And then mm -hmm. on your device, it might be able to add what the 1%, the 2%, the 3%, the tiebreaker is this. Here we go. Now I'm going to go into mm -hmm. uncharted territory. A Philly cheesesteak or just mm -hmm. a steak sandwich with melted cheese on it. Did I get that right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I just call it a steak sandwich with a bit of melted cheese on it, you know. But if my local model was able to correct it or tell me what the Aussie version was versus the Philly version was, then, you know, that would be fantastic. Yeah. a topic of distributed AI that is all ensembling, all adding to the mix, not necessarily competing for the mix. But, the, but your local device, low power, but it has, and here we go, have to mention the movie by Spike Jones, the movie Her of course is probably one of the most prescient AI movies in recent 10 years and we're edging towards it really quickly where it knows you granted I'm not going to mm -hmm. fall in love with my AI just yet but it knows you so that's I guess the last the last few percent isn't it to mm -hmm. amalgamate all that general knowledge into something that is personal specific and you can yeah. before it, I won't spoil the movie flies away <laughs> that was something that William and I have been playing with is this idea of being able to talk to a city. Um, so Ooh. we've been working on this um, something for Philadelphia. We were joking that it would be called Philip for Philadelphia. Nice. Um, and Phil. that it could even have a, a kind of funky personality that's Philly specific. But, um, you know, there's so much context out in the world, like street signs that carry so much context like a historic marker or a parking sign um, and we have databases of all of that spatial data um, yeah. so more and more it and makes sense to deep. have a, yeah so more and more it makes sense to have more localized models for that it, even kind of like spatial data set context about where you're at um, when you're asking questions, perhaps you're asking questions specific to the city. Well, to the ensemble point, I think there's um, there's also a movement uh, or a design pattern, if you will, around AI agents and AI networks. Um, and there's some really promising frameworks like LangChain, AutoGPT, MetaGPT, and so forth uh, that are um, showing how just sort of um, well-prompted or even fine-tuned models can coordinate with each other to achieve more complex tasks. I tend to put my 
um, my bets on, on that pattern versus the all-in-one. And I like it because it not only like makes it not only makes sense from a kind of being able to compose different capabilities and those capabilities can be like super specialized. Um, it, it also democratizes AI to a large extent where you can combine different open source models. A, a smaller, smaller models can be trained by, by us. If they're sufficiently small, you can spend a couple hundred dollars on fine tuning a model if you have the right data. And so those might even end up being open source sort of products, if you will, that then could be combined into agent chains or agent networks. Mm. Um, and that, uh, I, I think there's tremendous risks from a society perspective to have only one, two or three companies sort of own AI mm. altogether. So I'm really excited about um, anything that makes AI more uh, more accessible and democratized from that perspective. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of looking for the the free open source or the or the GNU version yeah. of, of version. AI coming up, you know. Yeah. yeah. Teresa, we need to think of a marketing Man. phrase for this is a bad phrase. So here here goes the marketers an AI of AIs, not one global model <laughs> to rule them all, but a way to not uh, the uh, the model that I was talking about. The design pattern is that all the models are sitting on the shelf and you know they all answer individually. But uh, mm -hmm. William, your uh, design pattern here you go i get you know paid ten dollars every time i say the phrase um is these are all inter-networked and so they actually um functionally coordinate yeah design thank you for the design pattern book very good okay architects unite yes <laughs> nice okay so we, can we have that in a powerpoint please william that'd be great um <laughs> this is right. a window into our world okay so we're no calling it first that, that this is what's coming hasn't got a good handle but global models have their place. If we want to know, you know, can you summarize this text for me? Can you build me a thing? The big ones take over because they're awesome. If we want to know US versus Australian isms, then probably there's an Australian G'day model and it, you know, says, yep, it's truth, she'll be right, no worries. No, it, it, it knows what no, no Wackens is. I'll leave that one up to the viewers to figure out. Um, and then there are local, local ones that are regional. And then Violet to the rabbit and other things in our pockets, on our faces, in our in our hands. There's hopefully a egocentric, a me-centric something that just translates to the way that I understand it. A lot of people. I'm going back to architect stuff. Wow, I really am getting paid a lot to say this phrase. Um, it's di different people have different ways of learning. Uh, people like me love a diagram. If it can't be done in a diagram, then you've got to do it in 20,000 words. But a diagram does everything. So I love a good visual chart. You can see by some of the spatial space side projects. If I'm not sure, I make a chart of it to figure it out. Other people love to read. Other people love to hear. Other people love to you know, have a brain dump by a trusted friend. But if that last level of an AI is able to understand our ways of learning and do that last level translation, oh my God, mm -hmm. I'd buy that tomorrow. Absolutely. So is this coming? Can we predict it? Or no, we just have to wait for someone to be the first to the party. But it, by, by the sound of it, it needs to be someone with some either a great way of working and open source and everyone jumps on it or is OpenAI going to release it next week? <laughs> yeah, I had read that um, there's a uh, th there's a rumor that Reddit is selling the user content to Google for training 
And I, I, and at the same time, we, I think we mentioned before this sort of defensive mechanism called Nightshade that, you, that artists can use um, to, to post their work online, but sort of contaminate any potential training on a vision model for itself. So I, extending this idea of democratizing AI one step further, I wonder if there's a future where we actually have agency over how much we participate in the training of these models. Um, and so that would be an even further step where I would say, um, can we like can we get to that place can, where you can sort of sign a set of permissions that say like yeah you can use you can use what I post on my blog but you can't use what I what I post on Instagram or anything family related. Or there better um, be micropayments like just hundreds of a cent that go my way. Yeah, the yeah, sort of the Web three promise from, is from NFTs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> indeed. Yeah. Yeah. If you've ever uh, hosted your own websites and you've read the raw logs of things hitting your websites, the ratio of robots, bots to humans is astounding. You know, the same as in the no. email world, the, the ratio of spam that gets caught to actually emails that go through is high 90s to single digits of spam. Sadly, the world of bots on the internet, because you can scrape a website, you can scrape the entire internet if you want, or just follow someone else. Yes, this is, this is all... This is all easily done technically, but I wonder if they're going to honor that. But no, no, no. The issues of privacy then with how do I get me correct is going to be um, one of the big um, stumbling blocks. To go all the way back to the start of our chat today, Sora is fantastic by the looks of it at doing straight text to video, but it does not do and probably will be limited to. You can never ask it to do President Biden saying something. There will be probably the physical limitations and probably technical limitations, probably like other large models. It doesn't know specifics. If you say, oh, I'm going to get in trouble, elderly white man with blue suit, red tie, you know, you can probably do all that perfect, but it won't get it exactly what you want. It'll just be vaguely similar to someone. The amount of prompting to get it perfect will be near impossible, dare I say it. So yeah, the, the generalization versus the specificness of you or me is pretty wild. Maybe that's coming to a screen near you. Well, thank you, team. Well done. I definitely feel educated. It's nice chatting to two adjunct professors and not being the professor <laughs> in the room. It's excellent. Thank you kindly. I think more of the team will join next week. Next week, we're going to be talking about um, prototyping and getting into spatial AI. What sort, of, what sort of tools, what sort of pathways are possible? So calling all the hackers, not hackers, hackers, but the, but the techno crew of of how their pathways have happened, how they fell into it or purposefully fall into it. A lot of resources we'd be putting out, a lot of our personal stories, and we'll chat about how to um, start and how to quickly jump ahead in the spatial AI world. Um, dare I say, learning tools, good, but line one, position one, learning code, there are faster ways. We'll start to tackle some of them next week. From all of us here, though, we might leave it there and we'll catch you next week on Spatial. See you, Tim. Bye-bye. If you'd like more news and insights about spatial AI or have a story or interesting topic you'd like us to cover, reach out to us. Better yet, come and join the community at Spatial. All the links are in the show notes.